0: Welcome to Word of Mouth, where dentists talk about how oral health is related to overall health, which is also known as the oral systemic connection. Although it might seem obvious that dental conditions and materials interact with the entire human system, there is a clear need for the mainstream medical community, policymakers, and the public to be educated about this reality as shown in recent research. That's why the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT, bring you this podcast. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. Learn more about the IAOMT and the oral systemic connection at www.iaomt.org. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers, and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, its individual members, its executive committee, its scientific advisory council, its administration, its employees, contractors, sponsors, or any other IAOMT affiliates. This episode of Word of Mouth is sponsored by Dental Safety Solutions. Dental Safety Solutions offers a wide variety of NIOSH-approved respirators, safety products, and smart packages that comply with the IAOMT's safe mercury amalgam removal technique recommendations. Additionally, for those mercury-safe dentists whose employees utilize respirators, Dental Safety Solutions offers a comprehensive OSHA-compliance package That includes all 13 required elements of OSHA's Respiratory Protection Standard. Some of the required elements included are online medical evaluations for your employees, a written respiratory protection program, certification of your staff as the Qualified Respiratory Protection Program Administrator, and all of the items necessary for your training of your staff to perform a qualitative BITREX fit test. You can find out more at DentalSafetySolutions.com. Hello and welcome to Word of Mouth. I'm your host today, Dr. Griffin Cole, past president of the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, also known as the IAOMT. Today, we are talking with a colleague of mine, a dentist and lead author of a new study entitled Mercury Vapor Volatilization from Particulate Generated from Dental Amalgam Removal with a High-Speed Dental Drill a significant source of exposure. That's a mouthful. (laughs) This study was recently published in the Journal of Occupational Medicine and Toxicology. So why don't we start by having you introduce yourself to our audience and telling us a little bit about yourself.
1: Yeah, I'm Dr. Dave Warwick. Uh, I've been in practice for about 35 years. I've been an IMT member for over 10 years. And uh, my main chief goal is to improve the safety of uh, the dental practice.
0: Okay, Dave. So give us the backstory. How did this study come about?
1: About, about five years ago, my, my daughter did a study that was published in uh, JOMT that dealt with the mercury vapor exposure to students in the university setting uh, in dental school. And uh, there were some confounding results from that study that made us believe that there is another uh, source of mercury vapor that we hadn't been able to consider and so we sought out to to try and figure out uh, where there might be another source of mercury. And we indeed did find it. it was it was a sort the source was the, the particulate or the uh, shavings from dental amalgam that are produced after you drill it with a high-speed drill.
0: Tell us a little bit more about your daughter's study. Um, you mentioned that she also found mercury exposures. For those unfamiliar with that concept of mercury escaping from amalgams,
1: uh, can you tell us where and how she measured for mercury? Yeah, so, so my, my daughter's study, uh, what she did was study the amount of mercury vapor that a dent, dental worker was exposed to. And she did it in three different scenarios. She was drilling amalgam fillings out of a tooth, and she measured the amount of mercury that was at the breathing site of the dental worker and in the three different scenarios, the first one was having no suction and no water, which gave the largest and highest results of how much exposure to mercury there was. Then she did it with suction but no water, and she also did it with suction and with water. Now, what was interesting is that in the suction but no water, There was actually higher levels of mercury in some instances that she was uh, testing for. And we couldn't figure this out until we realized that there was a possibility that when the suction was introduced, it was actually uh, introducing a substrate for the particulate that was produced from drilling the amalgam and was landing on the hand of the person that had the suction. And that the particulate was actually adding to the actual mercury exposure. Um, so that was something that we thought we have to look at, is, th- is this particulate, this sawdust, if you will, uh, that's coming off the dental filling, uh, is it actually a source of mercury vapor? And so that's what the study was all about, and that's where it was born.
0: So were those mercury measurements taken and done according to OSHA standards, OSHA, of course, being Occupational Safety and Health Administration?
1: When we went to study how much mercury vapor was coming out of particulate that was generated by drilling with a high-speed drill, um, when we looked at OSHA's methodology of trying to measure mercury exposure, we found that the, the characteristics of the particulate didn't really match the standard or conventional way that OSHA would have you uh, measure this type of exposure. Oh, so why is that? And the reason for it is is because you have this particulate that is flying all over the place, on surfaces where it's very difficult to to do swipes, um, OSHA recommends that you do a ten by ten centimeter swipe of an area and then decide how much mercury is involved. Where uh, in our case, where we have surfaces that are very difficult, we have you know the patient's uh, chest, we have the dentist's wrists and hands. So these are these are not surfaces that lend itself to doing classical OSHA um, assessments. So we that was one of the problems that we ran into. The other thing was that um it was felt that the that the vapor that comes off the particulate was very localized. It was a um it was you had to get right up to to the actual source to actually investigate this the the amount that was coming off whereas with OSHA they're more inclined to measure room uh, room levels of mercury vapor. So you could have a hidden sort of source that really isn't, uh, isn't being uh, uh, exemplified by doing the classic type of testing. So when we designed the study, we thought it would be best to measure directly the particulate to see what things like the skin would be seeing, uh, essentially. So we, when, we, when we did this study, we used the mercury 3000, and we harvested particulate from the drill immediately after just a normal mercury removal case, and then we put the intake of the mercury 3000 right by the particulate. And that gave us an idea of just how intense the mercury vapor was from this very small amount of, of particulate that was generated. Okay.
0: So where might one find this mercury-contaminated particulate matter that is generated
1: during the removal?
0: And what kind of dispersion pattern does it have
1: what we what we know from as as a dentist that' we've been working in the field that the that the um, particulate that is generated when you're removing an amalgam is it, it's all over the room it's it's for sure it, it localized within the areas of the patient's nose the patient's face the the dentists uh, hands, their wrists, their forearms, uh, definitely their lap. It uh, goes down the patient's chest. So we, we, we haven't yet actually sort of quantified the dispersal pattern of it. We're at this point in time we're we've just uh, tried to measure the intensity of mercury vapor that comes from that particulate. So by and large, we were just harvesting from the dental drill right after the, uh, the removal of the amalgam itself. But we are, looking, we are also looking uh, forward to another study that will actually be able to quantify uh, the dispersion pattern so we know what areas need to be protected uh, as the mercury-based uh, filling is removed from patient's mouth. All
0: right. Listen, so I know that all the dentists out there listening to this are going to want to know what kind of removal protocol were you using?
1: All of the particulate uh, that was measured, what came from regularly scheduled uh, mercury removal uh, procedures with patients. Uh, With these patients, we use the IOMT SMART program which uh, allowed us to do it in as safe a manner as we could. That included using copious amounts of water. We used a high volume suction. We had auxiliary suction. We had full barriers. Uh, we had all of the mercury rated masks for our uh, work, dental workers, plus all of the barriers for them, including face shields. Um, so we used the safest way we could and the, the, the way that would minimize the amount of particulate generated and the amount uh, of mercury vapor that was generated. So this would be the very best that a dentist could do to minimize the exposure. So when did you measure the mercury? Uh, so when we, when we did the procedure, immediately after the mercury was removed, then we took a 2x2 two two gauze and wiped the head of the high speed and then placed it uh, underneath the intake tube of the Mercury 3000. So that was the the technique that we used to generate and harvest the uh, mercury particulate. Uh, From there, the the mercury vapor was measured for about an hour, sometimes a little longer. um, And then that sample was sent to the laboratory to determine the actual mass of mercury within the particulate that we had measured the vapor from.
0: Okay, so hold it, hold it. Since the mercury vapor is continually off-gassing from the particulate, wouldn't those levels you got back be lower than what was originally produced?
1: When the samples of particulate were, were sent to the laboratory, it was AGAT Labs uh, in Calgary, were sent for mass uh, assessment to figure out how much the actual mercury within the particulate weighed uh, there is an understanding that there was still a continuous off-gassing of the mercury, which would have actually reduced the amount of mass from the initial time of testing to the time when the actual mass was determined. However, when we did the send-away for the, uh, the actual sample, the off-gassing had reduced to below uh, 10 uh, micrometers per... Oh, sorry below 10 micrograms per uh, meter cubed. So the off-gassing had diminished to a point where we didn't feel like the mass of the particulate would have changed much from the time that we sent it away to uh, the time that it was actually measured. Okay, so what do the results of your study show? So the results of the study uh, basically uh, confirm that we are underestimating a source of mercury, and it can have massive implications on how dentistry is practiced. Uh, the the amount of particulate that comes off of these dental fillings when they're drilled is is monstrous, and unfortunately, in a regular practice, uh, this particulate is not treated as as anything that's of of uh, significance. So, uh, in a regular practice, you might have people throwing uh, contaminated sundries into the garbage, which continue to off gas all day. You might have an un um, incomplete cleaning of some of the particulate from items that are in an autoclave, which will uh, increase the mercury vapor that is produced in in the actual autoclave and then exposed to the people that are looking after that. Uh, but, and I think in in, in a sense of uh, how we should think about this particulate, we, we're very germ-centric in dentistry, and we think about where the germs are. I think we have to start thinking about where the particulate is in the same manner. And if you're able to uh, do a, uh, a staining of the particulate and, and make it red and then track where it all goes within the procedure of removing an amalgam, you'd see this red everywhere. And all of that would be a dangerous material that needs to be handled in an appropriate way. So it it changes how we think about doing things. And in in this case, we'd want to mitigate any possible exposure to both the dental worker and, and also the patient. So it means completely respecting that exposure, uh, removing it from the office as quickly as possible uh, knowing where this material can land and uh, maybe even the design of, of the dental operatory itself and, and how we how we handle this this uh, material
0: all right so you guys found mercury particulate but what kind of levels are we actually talking about? Would that be something that OSHA
1: would be concerned about? When we measured the vapor from the particulate, we were getting levels that were almost ten times higher than OSHA's peak level, which is 100 micrograms per meter cubed. Um, that we got some levels that peaked out at around 800 to 900 uh, micrograms per, per meter cubed, and the the important thing is that they maintained a level that was over the hundred micrograms per meter cubed for over an hour. So it was a a real substantial amount of vapor that was uh, being emitted. I think uh, we did 20 samples and uh, over half of them had peaks that were higher than the actual OSHA peak. Um, we'd go into detail in the paper regarding some of the other peaks because every jurisdiction has different levels that are acceptable. But by and large, the levels that we found always exceeded uh, some form of, of a protective uh, level that was uh, established. So
0: what are the implications of your findings, say, in comparison uh, to any other mercury exposures that may be happening?
1: The implication of, of what we found in this study uh, goes to... The practice is making changes in how we protect our, our, especially our staff. This is an occupational matter. If you understand that when you do drill out mercury fillings that this this particulate is being spread out all over the place, Um, some of the important areas that we have to consider especially are in the dental workers' wrists, their hands, their forearms for sure. Um, and understand that this exposure is an everyday occurrence that may happen three or four times a day five days a week and uh, over time this buildup will cause a, a, a definite exposure to the dental worker We also have to understand and respect the fact that uh, mercury vapor is absorbed via the skin so that means that skin has to be protected from this source uh, so any 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 possible skin exposed to this particulate has to be covered by some form of barrier that is resistant to mercury vapor getting through it.
0: Okay. So what kind of barriers does one need to protect their skin from these mercury exposures?
1: Yeah, what we, we did a little bit of work on trying to establish exactly what kind of barriers we need. And generally, uh, any polyethylene water-resistant material is going to work. Uh, the nitrile gloves definitely work well. But what it means is you have to pay a lot more attention to what is protected. That means that the the wrists and the forearms have to be completely covered uh, thoroughly. And uh, another area of concern would be the neck and the face, which means that we have to be wearing a face shield for sure to uh, minimize or, or actually uh, prevent the particulate from landing on those bare skin areas. As well, uh, our smocks or our gowns that we wear uh, have to be made of a material that is a barrier. So things like regular operatory scrubs aren't uh, sufficient to stop um, the actual exposure. In fact they might make it worse because they'll collect the particulate and then it will off gas next to the skin for hours. So we need to we need to use these barriers that we know are resistant to mercury vapor and as well uh, after the procedure these these barriers have to be, thrown away in a place that's not going to cause a secondary exposure. In our office, we we take all of the sundries and we put them outside and let them off-gas into the atmosphere, uh, which I feel is more safe uh, by diluting it in the general atmosphere rather than leaving it in the clinic so that uh, our, our staff and our patients are exposed to that secondary exposure. All right,
0: Dave, but here's the big question. What kind of reception do you think your study will get among the dental profession?
1: What, so What I what I think is the the landmark of this study is that it's it's new first of all we 've identified a new source of mercury that hasn 't been thoroughly respected in the past uh, What that does is it 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 shows that there is a mercury exposure that we haven't measured for in the past. And that is a real and significant exposure to the dental staff, especially so the dental workers are being exposed to much more mercury than I think we've respected before. Now oh,
0: that that is super interesting. But I wonder, how do you think these findings will impact dental schools? You think they will reevaluate mercury exposures and start protecting the students and the staff?
1: Um, so we're dealing with an occupational exposure that we didn't know about before, but at this point in time now, it is imperative that the schools, they teach that there is a, a safe way to remove them and it has to be in such a manner that you minimize exposure from this particulate. Um, so it gives it gives the schools a new lease on life as far as how they design their curriculum so that they can honestly and practically not only deliver a good education but also be realistic in the the pitfalls of amalgam uh, because it is a dangerous substance, and we have to we have to be able to know its end of life uh, implications, which means that when it 's removed it 's removed in a matter that is um, Safe and is going to reduce the exposure to the dental worker and the dental student,
0: so does this concern about mercury particulate and the off gassing of mercury vapor only apply to general
1: dentists This goes farther than just operative dentistry where fillings are are done. It has implications in root canals, it has implications in uh, oral surgery. If you're, you're going to uh, remove a tooth that has an amalgam filling and you feel it needs to be sectioned to be removed, you have to remove the amalgam in such a way that you don't create a particulate. That means possibly having to do all the protocol and smart and and divide it in a way that uh, the mercury uh, particulate is not going to be affecting the situation or you drill in such a way that you don't actually drill the mercury. So you start to respect every time that you put a drill on that mercury base filling that you're going to have the potential to generate a very significant exposure to mercury. the customarily, when students uh, are taught to do endodontic uh, access openings, they're told, "Go ahead and drill, drill the access opening. You don't need to use water, uh, so that you can see, because the tooth is dead anyway." But that's an entirely misguided uh, suggestion because now you're now you're drilling a, a tooth, an, an amalgam in a tooth, uh, um, unsafely and creating even a worse exposure. So there's all of that. There's also when people are preparing a tooth to make a crown, they're going to be drilling amalgams sometimes. All of, these, all of these situations, we have to understand and respect the exposures that are created, and they have to be pre- protected from. And uh, that means using basically the smart protocol and, and, and respecting that particulate for hours after it's generated.
0: Okay, so give us some examples of what might generate more mercury particulate.
1: Um, traditionally, I think dentists are, are under the impression that it is wiser to drill uh, amalgam fillings using water and suction. However, there, there are circumstances that that's not happening. One of the classical uh, situations is in dental schools where dental students are learning to do uh, amalgam fillings in plastic teeth. And it's, they're routinely being drilled without suction and without water, uh, without any... Um, uh, consideration for the exposure that 's being created, so this type of this type of activity has to be stopped immediately based on the, our findings there 's also uh, in the regular dental practices there are uh, there are dentists that are still not using even the basic water and suction for different procedures. I mentioned the endodontic access openings there are there are lots of situations where access openings for endodontic teeth are being drilled without any protection of of water for sure. Uh, Not drilling with water and not drilling with a suction are both two of the biggest uh, factors in how much particulate is generated and how much mercury vapor is generated and there's been a lot of studies showing that this should never happen Uh, and now we just have another reason to really make sure that we're doing the removal of amalgam in a safe way.
0: All right, and and how do the findings of your study impact, say, what the perceived costs of amalgam are?
1: So in light of our findings, what we would propose is that people that are uh, pronouncing that amalgams are a very inexpensive way of restoring a tooth, uh, I would invite them to consider what we found and try and uh, somehow include within the cost of doing the actual amalgam filling, the cost of protecting the patient when it has to be drilled on or removed for a very various number of reasons. Uh, It's likening it to a deposit on a on a pop bottle. Uh, You you have to consider all of the uh, costs that might be involved. And in amalgams situation, if you if you built in the cost of having to remove it and the safety precautions and, and the risk that is involved in it, uh, I would I would propose to you that, that essentially amalgam would be the most expensive restorative material uh, uh, when you consider all of what we found. Wow. So
0: considering your findings, what do you think should be studied next?
1: When you consider what we found, obviously the, the next step is to try and assess different types of barriers that are gonna protect the dental worker and the, and the dental patient. Uh, we've done a little bit of preliminary work on that and some of the common sense things come through in the fact that the thickness of the material, for example, the thickness of the gloves is gonna afford an improved protection. And that has to be weighed against uh, the loss of dexterity uh, with the glove. So, so we don't we don't absolutely know the protective level of some of these uh, some of the industries that are providing these barriers can help and say that there's a certain amount of permeability or or protection against mercury vapor. But um, the the early um, findings that we have are that, as I said, polyethylene is a good good product, and the thicker the better. Uh, the nitrile gloves are, are slightly superior to a latex based glove, but but in actual fact, uh, what we found is latex gloves are, are not terrible, and a, and a thicker latex glove will afford more protection than a thinner nitrile glove. So, so we've we've started to try and assess some of these things. It's it's a a, a very large job to take all the possible barriers and try to assess the permeability, the design of the study. but And maybe that's something industry has to start doing for us so that we can understand how to protect from this particulate uh, that's off-gassing the mercury. Uh, have the, one of the problems you have is that the, the levels of mercury vapor that are coming off the particulate are high. And so that, that chain, the diffusional forces that are created by uh, almost 1,000 micrograms per meter cubed are, are very high as well so that the permeability is going to be higher. So the higher the mercury levels, then the, the more chance there's going to be for the, the mercury to diffuse through the barrier. Um, so this is something that really needs to be done uh, soon.
0: So tell me a little bit about the dispersion aspect of the mercury particulate.
1: When, when we did this study, we, we have also uh, gained some data on the amounts of particulate that fall on the patient's chest Uh, in the patient's zone of breathing, which would be the nose. We've also measured how much particulate lands on the forearm and on the uh, face mask of the dental worker. So we're just putting that information together so we have an idea of how much of a mass of particulate is landing in those areas so that we can equate how much mercury vapor might be realized by the dental worker if they weren't protected from from that uh, particular source? Goodness,
0: with all this mercury particulate being spread everywhere, what do you think is one of the most important pieces of personal protective equipment to protect oneself?
1: So, I the, the face shield is is for me one of the one of the most important and overlooked uh, uh, facets of protection. And the, and the reason I would say that is is twofold. The first thing is that a face shield um, stops the particulate from landing on the respirator. So the respirator, uh, you want to actually protect it from the particulate landing on it because then it creates another occupational exposure trying to clean it and and get it ready for the next patient. So my feeling is uh, every case should have its own face shield and it should be a throwaway so you get rid of it as soon as it's done. And that protects the neck area, you want to make sure that that face shield is long enough to cover the neck and that it covers the entire facial zone, uh, which which then prevents that particulate from landing on your skin and landing on your resp- resp- uh, respirator. Uh, so yeah, face shield is is under underlooked and or overlooked and and underused.
0: Hey, before we started recording, you were telling me about how regular ear loop mass actually make mercury exposure worse during a removal. I think you said that seems counterintuitive. Can, can you explain that to our listeners?
1: Yeah. So another really important part of an, an outcome of this study is assessing protection uh, for folks that might not be protecting as well as they should. Um, if you understand, uh, based on a study by Richardson in 2003, uh, he stated that 65% of the Uh, particulate that was generated is less than uh, a micrometer in aerodynamic diameter. Uh, So that means that they're very small, they're respirable. uh, But what's more important is that uh, some dentists and some dental students are wearing just a a conventional uh, ear loop mask to protect themselves. In fact, if you look at what's happened to our study and what's come out of our study, that, can might, that might be the very worst thing you can do. Uh, the first thing is that the, the 65% of the particulate generator that is smaller than the mask, because these masks, these air masks are only designed to keep about uh, a three micrometer particle uh, from passing through it. So you've got 65% of the particles can actually get through the mask and then be breathed in but the other part of it is is that the the particle sizes that are larger than 3 micro, micrometers uh get lodged within the mask and then are exuding or vaporizing this mercury vapor for a long period of time. So the student is breathing in this mercury vapor that's being sort of trapped in in the mask. So of all the things that that dental students and dentists can do, uh, do never, never, ever use an ear loop mask uh, when you're drilling out um, amalgam fillings. Uh, and that's why the mask or the face shield, sorry, is so important. It at least stops that uh, that exposure, where some of the particulate is is hitting the this earloop masks. So earloop masks are completely contraindicated when uh, removing amalgam fillings as protection.
0: So where else might these mercury particulates generated during removal actually land?
1: A- another result of this study is the. Uh, effect that this particulate might have just in the general operatory of the dentist. Uh, there's certainly going to be this particulate that's going to land on the floor. We're not going to be able to stop all of it from landing in various areas. Uh, the floor itself lends itself to a whole different animal uh, because you can understand that if you scuff the floor, if, if you brush the floor with your feet, that's going to generate heat and actually then cause those those particles to emit more mercury. So the the cleanup of the operatory after the removal of the amalgam fillings is essential. Um, we have dedicated uh, uh, throwaway disposal uh, mops that we use to get rid of uh, the particulate that lands on the floor, uh, and that you just the, the particulate lands everywhere. That's the whole point of this, and that it's sort of the stored mercury source that, if agitated, will will cause a, another exposure. So.
0: What are the implications of this mercury particulate being on the floor? I mean, is it harmless at that point or, or you know, it's out of the breathing zone? Is there really anything to be concerned
1: about? Uh, the, other, the other part about the particulate that's landed on the floor is that then shoes from the uh, dentist can, can pick up that particulate and spread it around to other parts of the dental office. Uh, it can also be tracked to the home of the dentist uh, if they're using the same shoes. So, so keeping the floors of the operatory uh, clean is is very important. I know in our office we have a dedicated operatory. We have two actually operatories that are is the only place in our office that we remove the amalgam fillings. Uh, we use booties uh, to protect that, and we also have a separate exit out of just that operatory so that none of the sundries and none of the uh, 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 materials that we use in removal are ever gone, ever tracked through our, our dental office. Uh, they go straight out into a, a special bin that's marked mercury waste. So Dave, as far
0: as the items and products that you actually wear to protect yourself, yeah. are any of them reusable?
1: The identification of the particulate and how important it is in, in the whole scheme of things in dentistry uh, changes even the way uh, I think about what armamentarian I use when I'm removing amalgam. I, I now actually try and use as much disposable material as I can and the reason for that is I don't want anything going in the sterilizer that has been used in that. So everything is that we use, it, that we can, is disposal. For the mercury removal for for me, all I have is a, a mirror, an explorer, and the dental drill. They're all changed out after the amalgam removal, but that's the only things that I use that are actually um, uh, reused. And, and we, at, at times, will use a disposable mirror too. Um, the rest of it is is packed up and put into a special bin that is mercury contaminated waste uh, That in itself is a massive problem that we as dentists have not really uh, been able to recognize or, or understand what we have to do with it because this waste then usually ends up in things like landfills and all amalgam continually vaporizes mercury, and at some level, and at some point in time in, in the future, it's going to end up being an environmental exposure. Uh, and so as dentists, we really have to start thinking in terms of what are we going to do with this waste? Uh, I have approached our local uh, authorities and actually told them that I have mercury waste. What do I? What, what do you want me to do with it? So now they're working on ways of uh, remediating it, trying to separate it, trying to do do whatever they can to to minimize the exposure to the environment. Um, to put in perspective, the amount well, we took a look at some Canadian numbers and. Uh, There's some surveys done in 2003 and 2009, I believe, in Canada regarding the use of amalgam and and what the destinations of amalgam was or the mercury in amalgam was. And there was around 38%, which, 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 which was in and around the area of 1,700 kilograms of mercury in amalgam that was not accounted for. In other words, we didn't know where it went. But most likely, it en- it ends up being this waste in particulate that that uh, we don't know where it is. So so that's you know over a ton ton and a half of mercury that we don't know on an annual basis that uh, its its final destination. Um, and we're at the moment in Canada we're we're doing things like stopping the use of coal because of mercury uh, exposure. In the, in the atmosphere, uh, the amount of dental waste at that point in time uh, equates to about three or four times as much as all of the coal-generated, uh, fire-generating fire plants in Canada. So, so we, we have a big problem, and uh, we have to start recognizing that this particulate, this waste, is a big deal. And uh, the first step, in my opinion, to trying to mitigate this exposure is to stop putting it in in the first place. Uh, we have to we have to start looking at the alternative um, uh, materials they're they're safe they're effective they're they have longevity and in if you consider the environmental impact and the cost of use through its life, amalgam fillings are the 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 worst and most expensive material that we can think of using
0: so all right out of curiosity, is the mass in the particulate related to the amount of mercury vapor that comes
1: off um when we did the study, we we did some analysis statistically. Uh, we we looked we looked at um, the mass of the mercury and the, in the particulate and whether or not it was related to the amount of vapor that comes off. And although there was a relationship between them, there was nothing no significance in the amount of mercury vapor that comes off relative to the actual mass of the mercury in the particulate. Um, we had to basically hypothesize why this happened and and some of the reasons that we came up with were that uh the efficiency of the person holding the suction the uh amount of water volume that comes through the high speed which may be varied the pressure of the drill bit on the on the actual amalgam filling um these are all factors that that can probably um affect the amount of mercury vapor that comes off the particulate so um there, it's not necessarily a mass that's related to the mercury vapor. Uh, it's all bad, and um, there are some that are worse for those reasons that I spoke of.
0: I, listen, I know you are a big believer in barriers for protection. So please tell our listeners about the importance of barriers to protect patients and the dental employees.
1: Yeah. So anyway, our so the, we have, like I have all the data for the dispersion, but so that was the other difference we did. The, our, next, our, our next stage of the study is to measure the dispers, this dispersion of this particulate. So we have, we have taken only two by two samples that are actually placed prior to the removal of the amalgam. And uh, we put them in the wrists of the, both the dental uh, dentist and the dental assistant. We put it on the face mask of the dentist and the dental assistant. We put it on the patient's chest and we put it on the patient's nose area uh, that is covered by a barrier. But we put it in that area so we can sort of monitor how much particulate a patient would realize if their nose wasn't protected by a barrier. And so we have that in, we have that information. We're doing some um, final work on trying to get that paper uh, established so that we can show the importance of uh, the barriers. Barriers m- may be more important than the respiratory protection because the barrier stops the particulate from getting to the inhalation points. Um, and I think that it's really important to understand that we have to keep those little particles away from us um, that's that's the goal. Hey, g- going back to the
0: barriers for just a second, what about respirators? I mean, they're a, they're a
1: barrier and they're reusable, right? We don't, we, even though we're going to be doing some dispersion patterns on it, we don't really know where the particulate's going to land. Um, and you can speak to a, a respirator use. If you're going to use a respirator, that's fine, but you have to understand that the particulate's going to land on the respirator. And so if you 're going to reuse that or try and clean it or try and get rid of the particulate that embeds itself either into the rubber of the particu- of the respirator or on the, the straps of particulate or of the respirator, um, you, you, you have to mitigate all of that, so the way you do it is by putting the barriers up first and not allowing the particulate landing onto the respirator. so then you have two layers of of, uh, of protection. So, in this case, if you have a respirator that has straps, for example, you'd have to put on a polyethylene shower cap type thing or some kind of barrier that stops the particulate from landing on, on that uh, respirator. Uh, otherwise, you're dealing with uh, an old exposure. The next time you use that respirator, if you scuff it or as you put it on, there could be particulate on that that then starts fumigating and, and it can go into your skin and and uh, uh, so so... We You have to try and step back and say it's it's that old thing about the infectious stuff. Where's that infectious stuff going? Where's that toxic stuff going? And how can I stop it from landing on things that I'm going to be uh, touching later on and And so disposal is for me uh, as important as anything, and just preventing that contact at every level. Dave,
0: are there any dental conferences or organizations or meetings where
1: you'll be trying to promote this study? Where, where I'd like to go first is to hit all the North American universities. If we get two or three to change, I think we'll get them all to change because they talk amongst themselves. So we need to target the, the big players in, in that game, get them educated. I think we don't, in this case, we don't want to, because it's new, we don't want to necessarily ruffle our feathers by putting stuff out first. We give them the information first, give them the option of, of changing their programs, getting rid of amalgam, making amalgam removal safe uh, by using the SMART protocol and um, give them that opportunity. If they decide not to follow, then they will be hit later by a groundswell uh, of, of information coming from patients that we will be able to um, educate so to me, that's the, the smart way of going through it is to give them a chance because it's new, it's it's novel, it's occupational. It doesn't infer any damage to patients. It's saying you have to protect your staff, you have to protect your students, and it's your obligation to. We found this new uh, source of mercury exposure, so it has to be looked after.
0: What might be some of the pitfalls with taking this info to dental schools? I mean, are, uh, are you targeting
1: dental schools? Yeah, so the strategy of... of of educating the parents of dental students and the dental students themselves is an excellent idea. However, in the in the way that dental faculties work, uh, I think it's most important to give the information to the faculties first, and so they have that, so they don't feel like they're being uh, you know hit from the backside. Uh, if they have the information and they decide to do nothing about it, and then receive all of this other information from uh, sort of sources that they might not think are, are so great, uh, then it's on them. But I think we need to give them the respect of allowing them the opportunity to change. And if they decide not to, then we then we go ahead and, and uh, educate the next levels.
0: So hold it. Wasn't your daughter in dental school when she published her study showing mercury
1: exposure to students? Yes, the the awareness of mercury exposure during amalgam removal uh, came to me a lot by my daughter, who when she was in dental school. Um, and so, what was lucky for us is in my daughter's third year, there was a mandatory um, requirement to do a study. So my daughter and and two other of her. Classmates set out to do the um, her study, which is published in JOMT, and it was called uh, mercury exposure uh, in dental students from amalgam. And uh, they 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 did this all of the data collection. They had a very good uh, uh, resource to to draw upon from the university. They had people that told them how to design it. They had statisticians. So they did the 20 cycles of the three different um, scenarios of taking amalgam out without water and suction, taking amalgam out just with suction, and taking amalgams out with water and suction. And so they, they got all that data. They had the 20 from each one to satisfy statistically the results. My daughter and her two classmates got the paper published, and uh, it, did, it did change our our home university to a certain level, uh, I am aware that they have taken and improved some of the some of the um, uh, protective uh, sort of protocols involved in amalgam. Uh, it's not perfect, but it did change them somewhat. We're hoping that this new paper will really really hammer home the the idea that th- that they're causing exposure that uh, is unnecessary.
0: Dave, what kind of pushback, if any, did
1: your daughter experience? I think my daughter, first of all, I think they, both, they all got injured from actually doing the exposure because they were drilling amalgam out uh, without uh, water and, and suction. And, and although they had increased protection, I don't think their protection was sufficient to uh, completely protect them. So... So, unfortunately, in the study, they were they were actually exposed, and, and, and my daughter actually uh, had some minor symptoms uh, shortly after that for a period of time, had to do some detox, and, and uh, I mean, she's great now and six months pregnant, but I, I think we, we want to really make sure that the dental student is comfortable in the transition of getting rid of amalgam and, and also in the addition into the curriculums of, of having removing amalgam in a in a smart manner
0: wow what an experience for her to go through now knowing all you know dave about this how did that make you feel as a parent i mean knowing that you know about all the mercury exposure and how toxic this substance can
1: be well first of all her efforts made me proud uh it was something where uh, you know you, you 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 can recognize a leader because she knew, she knew in her heart that, that what she was doing was going to change the world, which, which it has. And um, and I, I, I had, you know, I had some, I, I'm not going to say pity, but I just thought, God, what she's going through is is horrendous. Um, but I also knew she could handle it, and she did it with flying colors, and um, uh, just created a document that uh, is outstanding.
0: Out of curiosity. Did you ever feel powerless with what was happening to your daughter?
1: I, I would say in all of all of that, uh, I never felt powerless. I, I just knew that it was going to take some time. I, I and someone had to start. But and I don't think Robin ever felt powerless either. I, I, th- I think she felt powerful. To tell you the truth, uh, it was just it, you just have to understand what you're dealing with and the game that you're dealing with, and try and integrate uh, the changes in a way that they can digest and so that's that's really what i think is important here what is the one most important finding to come out of your study one of the most important things that comes out of our study is that um, we are likely exposing our staff and ourselves to a lot more mercury vapor than what we ever thought and the reason is is because within the paper it states that we, we we found methods of measuring mercury that we can't measure using OSHA standard uh, techniques, and um, as a result of that, and it's it means that we might be unknowingly uh, hurting our staff and ourselves, and because of that, I think all dentists have to step back and think about that particulate as it's being flown all around the room and in the operatory as you remove an amalgam and think of it in a way as a, as a poison that it is and and figure out every single way that you can stop uh, being in contact with that and and getting that stuff out of the office as fast as you can. Uh, I think that's the most important thing that we we've really been able to detail in the study.
0: What are some of the considerations to the patient in
1: regards to this particular? In other words, how does it impact them? Uh, you have to respect the particulate and that and that's not only on a protection for the dentist, which is obviously very important, but it's it's a protection for the patient because that particulate uh, is is fumigating for hours. so if you leave a particulate in the mouth, for example, and it's you're breathing through your your mouth, uh, you're going to be inhaling that vapor for hours uh, and, and this is why the rubber dam is just so. Mandatory, in my opinion, to remove uh, amalgam fillings, allowing particulate to go uh, into the mouth and into the lungs uh, while you 're drilling the amalgam just doesn 't make sense when you understand the levels of mercury that come off of this particulate with the rubber dam once again, um, we have some pul- pulmonary uh, work. Assessing rubber dam material, and um, the, the non-latex dams seem to be slightly better than the latex dams uh, in protecting against the mercury passing through it. But a bigger, a bigger factor is the thickness, and using a, the thicker uh, style of rubber dam is going to protect better than the thinner um, I, I, I'm not an expert on the kinetics of, of how mercury affects some of these materials, but I'm, I understand that over time, mercury vapor will actually decompose or break down some of these barriers, and, and over time they get weaker and weaker. So having a thicker uh, material to barrier is obviously going to be a better way to protect so some of it is common sense, uh, but there needs to be a lot of work done on, on assessing barriers and, and their efficiency. I, I, as I said, I, I hope that we can disseminate this information uh, in, a, in a logical manner that educates people in a way that makes them want to change uh, convention.
0: Well, that is it for this episode of Word of Mouth. And I want to thank Dr. Dave Warwick for being on our podcast today and sharing information about his new study. And I'm going to read it again for you guys. It's called Mercury Vapor Volatilization from Particulate Generated from Dental Amalgam Removal with a High-Speed Dental Drill, a Significant Source of Exposure. And again, this study can be found in the Journal of Occupational Medicine and Toxicology. Dave, listen, thanks again. I really appreciate it. Congratulations on this Great study. So, to all my listeners, until next time, safer dentistry, healthier world. This podcast has been brought to you by the International Academy of Oral Medicine and Toxicology, the IAOMT. The IAOMT strives for safer dentistry and a healthier world. We are a network of over 1,000 dentists, health professionals, and scientists who research dental products and practices, including the risks of mercury fillings fluoride, root canals, and jawbone osteonecrosis. We are a nonprofit organization and have been dedicated to our mission of protecting public health and the environment since we were founded in 1984. You can learn more about us at www.iaomt.org and www.thesmartchoice.com. The information provided on this video is not intended as medical advice and should not be interpreted as such. If you seek medical advice, please consult with a healthcare professional. Also, the information in this video represents the thoughts of the individual speakers and the views expressed in this interview do not necessarily reflect the views of the IAOMT, its individual members, its executive committee, its scientific advisory council, its administration, its employees contractors, sponsors, or any other IAOMT affiliates.